Hi, and welcome to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in pediatrics. I'm Dr. Rachel Moon, and I'm a general pediatrician and professor of pediatrics at the University of Virginia. Today, we'll be reviewing what you need to know before you first order vaccines. Providing vaccines is one of the most important things that any of us do, and in general, pediatricians are passionate about vaccines. However, it involves much more than just putting in the orders for the various vaccines. In this podcast episode, we'll briefly review how vaccines work, the types of vaccines, what you need to do before the visit, what you should review with families before ordering the vaccines, including precautions and contraindications, and anticipatory guidance about vaccines. We'll also talk a little bit about how to handle vaccine hesitancy. Here's a list of vaccines that are typically given in the United States to pediatric patients. Depending on where you are, some of these are given in combination vaccines. Hepatitis B, rotavirus, diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis, or DTaP. This formulation is slightly different from Tdap, or tetanus, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis. The latter has more tetanus component as, and is given to children and adults who are seven years and older. DTaP is given to children who are younger than seven years. Haemophilus influenza type B or Hib, pneumococcal conjugate, PCV13 or PCV15, depending on where you are, inactivated poliovirus or IPV, COVID-19, influenza, measles, mumps, rubella or MMR, varicella, hepatitis A, human papillomavirus, or HPV, meningococcal, and meningococcal B. Because the vaccine schedule can change from year to year, we're not going to go through the schedule. Instead, I'm going to refer you to the CDC website, which is a great resource. Additionally, the American Academy of Pediatrics annually publishes its recommendations for vaccines. The CDC and the AAP are usually aligned, so either resource is good. I put both of these websites in the show notes. It's also important to know that there may be some minor variations in vaccine timing between practices. For instance, since you can get some vaccines between 12 and 18 months, some practices may give the DTaP vaccine at 12 months, while others may wait until 15 or 18 months to give the DTaP vaccine. So just check with your residents or attending to make sure that you're ordering vaccines using the protocol for your practice. Let's first talk about how vaccines work. If you remember from your immunology or microbiology courses, vaccines contain enough of the particular pathogen or toxin to create an immune response. If parents are hesitant about vaccines, it's important to use language that explains how vaccines work without turning parents off. Studies have shown that talking about how vaccines teach the immune system are most helpful. Many experts in communication also suggest that we talk about vaccines as protecting the community. This de-emphasizes vaccination as a personal choice that is only important to the person getting vaccinated. For instance, when I'm seeing a newborn, I often talk about how important it is for the family members and everyone who's going to be in contact with the baby to be vaccinated against influenza and COVID since the baby is not old enough yet, old enough to get vaccinated yet. There are other ways to describe vaccines. Many parents will understand the metaphor of a software update. The update will keep the computer or the body safe from network viruses that can make the computer or body vulnerable or make it crash. 
If you use a software update metaphor, you want to emphasize the network part of this metaphor so that, again, you're talking about the wider impact of vaccines beyond oneself. If you want to learn more about how to frame your discussion about vaccines, I would refer you to research by the Frameworks Institute, and that reference is in the show notes. Now that we've talked about how vaccines work, let's talk a little bit about the types of vaccines. While there are many types of while there are many different vaccine platforms, for practical purposes, you basically need to know that some vaccines are live attenuated vaccines, while others are not live vaccines. The live attenuated vaccines are made by taking a pathogen and weakening it so that it does not cause infection in most people. Routinely given live attenuated vaccines include measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR, varicella, and rotavirus. There's also a live attenuated influenza vaccine, which is given intranasally. The oral polio vaccine, or OPV, is given in other countries, but not in the U.S., but that is a live attenuated vaccine. In the U.S., we use the IPV, or inactivated polio vaccine. There is also a live attenuated yellow fever vaccine, but we don't give this to children routinely unless they are traveling to an endemic area. There are a couple of important things to remember about live attenuated vaccines. First of all, they cannot often be given to patients with immunocompromise, and sometimes they cannot be given to patients if there is a household member with immunocompromise, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Secondly, live attenuated vaccines cannot be given within a month of each other because some studies have shown that the immune response may be diminished if a live vaccine is given too soon after another live vaccine. However, you can give more than one live attenuated vaccine at the same time. For instance, we often give MMR and varicella vaccines at the same time. The non-live vaccines do not contain live pathogens. Rather, they can kill kill. Rather, they contain killed pathogens or antigens or genetic material from the pathogens, enough to create an immune response. Sometimes the antigens are conjugated to other particles, like inactivated tetanus toxin, to improve the immune response. If you hear someone talk about a conjugated vaccine, that's what they mean. Some vaccines also contain adjuvants, such as aluminum compounds or lipids, which also improve the immune response. One downside of non-live vaccines is that they sometimes do not provoke as strong an immune response as live attenuated vaccines. However, an important upside is that you can give them to patients who are immunocompromised. Now that you know the basics about the types of vaccines, let's review what you'll do before the visit. Before you go into the room to see the patient, you should review the vaccine record to see what vaccines are needed. You should routinely do this before every well-child check since it's anticipated that vaccines will be given at that visit. I think it's also important to check the vaccine record before sick visits as well. If it's during the fall and winter months, always remember to see if the patient has received the influenza vaccine this year. There are a couple of reasons to check vaccines for every sick visit. First, you may be able to check, uh, catch the child up on vaccines. Second, if the child is missing vaccines, that may impact your differential diagnosis. For instance, if you have an unimmunized child with a severe cough, pertussis may be in your differential. Or you might need to worry about measles or varicella if your patient with fever and rash is not immunized. Double-check the vaccines that are needed with your resident or attending. It can get complicated if the child is behind on vaccines since you'll have to use a catch-up schedule. 
Also check to see what the maximum number of vaccines are given in your practice. While there's technically no limit to the number of vaccines that can be given at one single time, some practices are reluctant to give more than five or six vaccines at a time. Now you're in the room with the patient and you're ready to talk about vaccines. You need to be sure that there are no contraindications to giving vaccines or precautions that you need to consider. When you look at screening tools for vaccine contraindications, the list of questions seems very long and daunting. However, many of the questions on these screening tools are ones that you'll be asking as a routine part of the visit, or you will already know the information from your review of the medical record. Is the child sick today? Even at well child visits, if the patient is concerned about, if the parent is concerned about the child being ill, they'll usually bring it up. There's no evidence that acute illness reduces vaccine efficacy or increases vaccine adverse events. And mild illness, such as an ear infection, upper respiratory infection, diarrhea, or fever, is not a contraindication. However, some parents or clinicians may want to hold off on vaccines if there is concern that vaccine side effects may make it difficult to sort out how a disease is progressing. If a child is currently taking antibiotics, that is not a contraindication. Children can also be immunized during hospitalization or before or after surgery or procedure. However, because other hospitalized patients may be immunocompromised, usually live attenuated vaccines are not given to hospitalized patients. Many hospitals will vaccinate children on the day of discharge to minimize risk of exposure to immunocompromised patients while maximizing the opportunity to vaccinate the patient. Does the child have any allergies? Most allergies to medications and food are not an issue. However, if the child has had an anaphylactic reaction to gelatin, they may not get vaccines that contain gelatin. Many of the live attenuated vaccines have gelatin. If a child gets a stomach ache or any other reaction that is less severe than anaphylaxis, gelatin-containing vaccines are fine to give. Similarly, if a child has had an anaphylactic reaction to latex, that is a contraindication to vaccines that have latex as part of the packaging. This includes vial stoppers, pre-filled syringe plungers, or pre-filled syringe caps. Children who are at the highest risk for latex allergy are those with spina bifida because they have had a lot of exposure to latex products early in life. Spina bifida in and of itself is not a contraindication to vaccines. Additionally, a local reaction such as local swelling to a prior vaccine or to latex is not a contraindication. Egg allergy used to be a contraindication for influenza vaccine, but that is no longer the case. However, if a child has had a severe allergic reaction to egg, such as angioedema or respiratory distress, or has required epinephrine or another emergency medical intervention, the vaccine should be administered in a medical setting where severe allergic reactions can be managed. In those rare conditions, we refer those patients to our allergy clinic. Has a child had any problems with vaccines in the past? Many children will have had minor reactions such as fever or not at the vaccine site. These are not contraindications. In addition to anaphylaxis to a vaccine or vaccine component, a prior reaction that would be a contraindication would be a history of encephalopathy within seven days after receiving a DTaP vaccine. This is an extremely rare vaccine, a reaction, particularly with the newer acellular pertussis-containing DTaP vaccine. However, a child who has had this reaction should not get additional doses of pertussis-containing vaccine. An alternative would be to give 
diphtheria tetanus or DT vaccine without the pertussis component. Does the child have any chronic disease? If the child has any immunocompromising disease, such as immunodeficiency, asplenia, or HIV infection, they should not get any live attenuated vaccines. The exception is a child with HIV infection who is asymptomatic and has a CD4 cell percentage of 15% or higher. They should receive MMR and varicella vaccines because the risk of these diseases is much higher than the risk of giving the vaccine. If the immunodeficiency is familiar or congenital, also ask if there are any household members who have the immunodeficiency. If so, then check with the child's immunologist about their immune status. If the person getting the vaccine is immunodeficient at the time of getting the vaccine, they could transmit the infection to immunocompromised family members. In the past three months, has the child taken medications that affect the immune system, such as oral high-dose steroids, chemotherapy for cancer, immune mediator or immune moderator diseases for drugs for rheumatic disease, inflammatory bowel disease, or has the patient had radiation treatment. Live attenuated vaccines should be postponed until after the treatment has ended. For specific diseases, double-check the specialist's last note. They will often have made some comment about when the child can get vaccinated. Children with asthma who are taking inhaled steroids can receive live attenuated vaccines. Is the child on long-term aspirin therapy? If so, they should not receive live attenuated influenza vaccine because of the association of Rye syndrome after children with influenza infection were treated with aspirin. Give this child the inactivated flu vaccine. Does the child have asthma? In general, children with asthma or a history of wheezing in the past 12 months should be given inactivated influenza vaccine because there are concerns that live attenuated influenza vaccine could induce wheezing. Other fairly rare problems such as cochlear implant or CSF leak are also contraindications for live attenuated flu vaccine, so you will give them the inactivated influenza vaccine. Does the child have have asplenia? Remember that without a spleen, one is susceptible to infections with encapsulated organisms. So if the child has asplenia or functional asplenia from sickle cell disease or some other process, they will need to get extra vaccines to protect against encapsulated organisms, which include the pneumococcal 23-valent vaccine and the meningococcal vaccines. If the child is six months and younger, have they ever had intussusception? If they have, they should not be given rotavirus as intussusception can be a rare complication of this vaccine. Does the child have a history of seizures or other CNS problem? If the child has a history of seizures or there is a first-degree relative, meaning parent or sibling, with a history of seizures, they should get MMR and varicella as separate vaccines as a combination vaccine, MMRV, or measles, mumps, rubella, vac- uh, measles, mumps, rubella varicella is associated with a higher risk of seizures for children younger than four years of age. If the child has an unstable, progressive neurological problem, some would defer any pertussis-containing vaccine. If the child has a history of Guillain-Barre syndrome within seven days of receiving a tetanus-containing vaccine, that is considered a precaution, not a contraindication. Some would not give additional tetanus-containing vaccines. If a child has a history of Guillain-Barre within six weeks of a prior influenza vaccine, this is similarly a precaution. Most would vaccinated with inactivated influenza vaccine if the child is at high risk for severe influenza complications.
In the past year, has a child received a transfusion of blood or blood products or has been given IgG or an antiviral drug? MMR, varicella, and live influenza vaccine may have to be deferred. Check the CDC website as the period of time that you need to defer the vaccine depends on the medication and the dose. Is the child pregnant? Is the patient pregnant? Or is there a chance that they could become pregnant during the next month? Live virus vaccines are contraindicated one month before and during pregnancy because of the theoretical risk of viral transmission to the fetus. HPV vaccine is not recommended during pregnancy. On the other hand, we do recommend that all pregnant persons receive inactivated influenza vaccine and Tdap as this decreases the risk of disease in the young infant. Has a child received vaccinations in the past four weeks? If the child has received any live vaccine, they have to wait 28 days before they receive another live vaccine. Inactivated vaccines may be given at the same time or at any spacing interval. That is a list of screening questions. Again, it seems like a lot, but you can get all of the information by doing a review of the question and then asking a few questions. I usually ask, how is your child doing today? How is your child done with vaccines in the past? Does your child have any allergies? Are there any medical problems? Has your child ever been hospitalized or had any operations? Usually, if you ask these questions, you'll know if you need to ask more questions. For instance, if they say that the child is taking penicillin or amoxicillin every day, you may want to ask about sickle cell disease or asplenia because they are uh, apparently taking penicillin prophylaxis. Okay, now that you've made sure that the child can get vaccines, double-check the vaccines that you've ordered with your resident and attending and then order them. You will also have to do some anticipatory guidance regarding the vaccines. As we mentioned, there may be parents who are hesitant to have their child vaccinated. Your job is to reassure them and to normalize all of the vaccines. Don't make it a big deal and don't single out any specific vaccines because if you talk to them about being a normal part of the visit, parents are more likely to accept them. So first, let the parent know which vaccines the child will get. There is good evidence to show that parents are much more likely to accept vaccines if you tell them what the child is getting rather than asking the parent if they want to give the vaccines. So I generally say something like, today she'll get her six-month vaccines. Most of them are combination vaccines, so she'll get five actual shots. She'll get vaccines to protect against diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, polio, certain types of meningitis, pneumonia and ear infection, flu, and COVID. Second, talk about common side effects. Many children will get a fever or redness or soreness at the injection site. I usually talk about this not as a side effect, but as a sign that the vaccines are doing their job and that the child's body is showing that they're developing antibodies and protection against the disease. We do not recommend pre-treating children with acetaminophen or ibuprofen because studies have shown that pre-treatment can decrease the effectiveness of the vaccine. However, if the child does get a fever, treating with acetaminophen or ibuprofen at the time of the fever has not been shown to diminish the immune response. So you can calculate the dose of acetaminophen or ibuprofen for the child and write that down for the parent. The common side effects for MMR and varicella vaccines include mild fever and rash, but these do not usually occur until approximately one week after the vaccine is given. This is helpful to let parents know. Third, for parents who are vaccine hesitant, ask if there are any questions that you can help to answer. Be polite, kind, and understanding. They don't want anything bad to happen to their child, and neither do you. 
let them know that you definitely recommend the vaccine. If you don't explicitly say that you recommend the vaccine, some parents will assume that you don't care if they get the vaccine or not, or that, they, that you don't want them to get it. I don't get into an argument about it. I just say that I recommend it. If you have children or other relatives in the pediatric population, a statement said, I made sure that my nieces or nephews are vaccinated or I vaccinated my children can be very powerful. If parents try to argue with you, you can just say, I don't want to argue with you. I do recommend it, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Or you can say something like, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you what I recommend. You can also start by asking, can you tell me what you're hesitant about? This may give you insight into if a parent has misinformation about a particular vaccine, about vaccines in general, or about some other part of the process, and you can target your educational approach. It also lets you know where parents get their information, like the news, Facebook, or Instagram, so you can diplomatically discourage this and and steer them to reputable sources instead. If they're still hesitant, I also like to offer information from the American Academy of Pediatrics about the vaccine or the website so that they can read more. This lets parents know um, that they have an opportunity to understand which websites we consider the standard for scientific information about children. One additional note about hesitancy, some parents may think that vaccines, particularly the MMR vaccine, cause autism. This theory has been thoroughly debunked. None of the vaccines are associated with autism, and having autism is not a contraindication to any of the vaccines. Another thing is that many of the older children will be scared to get vaccines. They will often be able to convince their parent to not give them the vaccine. Here are a few strategies that may help. You can talk about the importance of vaccines. This can particularly help if you know of a local outbreak or of a um, if you know of a local outbreak of a, a vaccine preventable disease. Or you can say flu is really bad this year, so most parents will want to get their vac- their child vaccinated. You can reassure the child that it will hurt for a second, but that they are strong and brave, and that this will help them not to get sick later. You can talk about helpful distraction techniques. This is one time when I really like digital media. I tell my patient to choose what they would really like to watch on their phone or their parent's phone, and then I give them permission to watch that while they're getting their vaccine. Some practices have numbing spray, which is either lidocaine or benzocaine that can be helpful for children. And some practices actually recommend that parents um, place a lidocaine patch, which parents can buy over the counter on their child's arm before they come to the visit. Obviously, it'd be too late to recommend for someone who's already in the office, but you can check with your practice to see if either lidocaine spray or patches are something that they recommend for the next visit. Okay, you've now successfully counseled a patient about vaccines and vaccinated the child. Good work. If you get a chance during your clerkship, I also recommend that you at least watch one vaccine being given and even ask if you can do one. Thanks for listening to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics. I hope that you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below and rate the podcast.